0: This morning's reading is taken from Mark, chapter 2, beginning at the first verse and reading through to verse 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralysed man, carried by four of them. Since they couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the the mat that the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralysed man, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.' your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this.
1: It's a good start, isn't it? (laughs) Well, earlier this morning, many of us, uh, many across the nation, including us here at All Saints, gathered at cenotaphs and war memorials to remember the millions of men and women who have fought and died for our freedoms and privileges. Remembrance Sunday provides uh, us with a brief moment in our busy lives to stop and reflect on the reality of our human condition and the tragic state of our world as a result. For many, today might be the one day each year when their thoughts turn to God, perhaps with questions or even accusations as to the widespread pain and suffering in the world. And if you're just visiting this morning as part of the act of remembrance, then can I encourage you, along with the regulars here, to continue to engage with the question of human sinfulness and our relationship with the creator God. For as Christians, we can take great comfort that God is sovereign and sits on the throne over all things. And we need, therefore, to turn to his word, the Bible, to get his perspective on the state of our world, both the international world of politics and war but also the personal world of each of us which can be just as scarred by evil and suffering and tragedy i'd be grateful then if you could turn to chapter two of mark's gospel if you haven't uh, kept it open uh, page 1003 in the bibles and before we look at it in more detail let me pray Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open your word to our hearts and our minds, and our hearts and our minds to your word. We pray that for Jesus' sake. Amen. We've been working through chapter one of Mark's gospel over the past few weeks, and Jesus has been ministering in the region of Galilee, preaching and miraculously healing people. And so far, the reception has been pretty good. Word has spread, and flocks of people are coming to see and hear Jesus, to the point where he can't set foot in a village or town without being overwhelmed uh, by crowds of people hoping to see him perform a miracle, or in many cases, presumably, to be healed themselves. We read at the start of today's passage that the people have got wind of Jesus' return to Capernaum, and he's probably lodging with one of his new disciples, uh, Simon Peter, at this point. And Jesus is once again preaching, this time to an overflowing house. Verse 2 says, They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And then in verse 4, Some men came bringing to him a paralysed man carried by four of them. Now, if you can try to think for a moment beyond those sort of colourful cartoon images that usually accompany children's versions and publications of this passage, then you have to admire the pretty extreme action taken by the friends of this poor paralysed man in order to gain access to Jesus. We're not talking a beautifully cut square hole in the roof with four smiling faces peering in, um, and a man on a mat. But imagine being that man yourself, being hauled up onto the top of this house, lying on your mat, and then being lowered through a hastily dug hole in a now presumably structurally precarious roof. It must have been uncomfortable, to say the least, quite, probably quite painful, And not a little bit hair-raising. But these men were driven by faith to go to whatever lengths necessary to see their friend healed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralysed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Was that what they expected to hear? Was that what they wanted to hear? Well, judging by the reaction of some of the crowd, these words of Jesus came as something of a shock. Up until now, word on the street has been that this Jesus fellow is is quite extraordinary. We only have to look at the things said about him in chapter 1 to realize that. Verse 22 in chapter 1 says he teaches as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Verse 27, he even gives orders to impure spirits. Verse 40, if you are willing, implores a man with leprosy, you can make me clean. But this is the first time that Jesus is explicit about his authority to forgive sins. And he does so not as an afterthought or an added bonus to the healing that was sought of him, No, the forgiveness of of sins is Jesus' primary concern. The people look for physical healing, but for Jesus, the removal of the man's sins is the most life-giving healing he can bring. By going against the expectations of the crowd, he's teaching them as he teaches us who read it that human sin, in other words, all the ways in which each of us fails to live up to the perfect standards and precepts God has for the world he made is something far more serious even than the most debilitating disease or the deadliest of bullet wounds. So what is the reaction of those witnessing this event As will turn out to be the case so often throughout Jesus' ministry, it's the teachers of the law, those self-righteous, holier-than-thou religious types who take offense. Verse 7, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In fact, this is the first record Mark gives of any opposition to Jesus' teaching And it's interesting to note that their problem with Jesus here is not that he's calling the man sinful. They appear to regard and understand sin as something real, but also as something that only God can forgive. And they're right about that. We can almost hardly blame them for being outraged here at Jesus' claim to have forgiven sin the man's sins. For up to this point, he has not yet fully revealed his divinity. He's been preaching the scriptures. Verse 2 says he preached the word to them, by which uh, we understand to mean uh, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. And we're told elsewhere, uh, for instance, in Luke's gospel, that he would explain what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. So perhaps in his preaching, Up until now, he's been laying the foundations uh, for those listening around him, pointing them towards the revelation that he is indeed the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the savior. But no one understood or expected that to be God himself, a humble young man born and raised a carpenter's son in the Middle East. Why should they believe him? Let's continue reading from verse 8. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? the other, invisible. And the logic seems to be that it's easy enough to say your sins are forgiven, as whether they really have been or not cannot be proved or disproved. It's invisible. On the other hand, it's harder to command a paralyzed man to get up and walk, and the crowd are going to want visible proof straight away, and you wouldn't want to suffer the embarrassment of that going wrong. The fact that Jesus can prove his authority to heal attests to his authority to forgive sins. Yet on a deeper level, Jesus knows that there's nothing easy about the price he will have to pay in order that this man's sins may be forgiven. It's a price that he would go on to pay in full when he suffered a brutal crucifixion, being rejected by his friends and those who once sang his praises and suffering death and separation from God for our sake. It is a price we could not ever pay ourselves. What then is our response to this passage? On a day when... The horrors of war are at the forefront of our minds. It's not difficult to recognize the spiritual brokenness of the world. And we might also reflect on our own sinfulness and our need first and foremost for Jesus' forgiveness and spiritual healing. It is our selfishness, our greed, our stubbornness, our pride that not only bring about human conflict and turmoil, but which put us under the righteous condemnation of a holy God. And it is Jesus' sacrifice of himself once offered that paid that price in full for sins past, present, and future, that we might stand blameless before God. Son, Son, Daughter, your sins are forgiven. Have you recognized your own need for this forgiveness? Have you accepted Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf? Or maybe, like the teachers of the law, you can accept that you need forgiveness, that you've done things wrong, but you struggle to believe that Jesus has that authority, that he is truly God. Who do you believe Jesus is? Historically, it is now widely accepted that he did indeed live 2,000 years ago and suffered the humiliating Roman execution of being hung on a cross. But was he really God? C.S. Lewis famously put it like this, quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a friend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Unquote. In short, if Jesus is not God himself in human form, how dare he presume to tell me my sins are forgiven? He has no right, no authority. Or could it be that this is a man in whom it is worth putting my faith and trust, who demonstrated his great power and authority through the miracles that he performed during his lifetime and that were faithfully recorded by eyewitnesses and whose resurrection from the dead after that brutal crucifixion, the evidence for which lends some sound credibility to what many dismiss as a fairy tale, seals the hope of believers for the everlasting life that they receive when that we receive when we are made righteous in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Those great words from John chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17. Now, as we've seen, the Jewish teachers of Jesus' day knew of their need for repentance from sins and forgiveness from God, though they rejected Jesus' messianic claim. But what about those who reject God outright? Or even those who, on solemn days such as this, pay lip service to a God whom they otherwise ignore? Perhaps the unceasing cruelty of war or ongoing personal pain in your life makes the existence of God seem improbable or even impossible. Maybe the idea of a God who would allow such suffering to go on is abhorrent to you. Well, firstly, I want to acknowledge those very real barriers which have caused so much pain, anger and confusion to so many throughout human history. Secondly, I want to point you to Jesus, who does not try to brush aside or gloss over the reality of evil, but who himself wept tears of sadness and distress, and who suffered a humiliating death and outright rejection. As Isaiah put it, a man of suffering and familiar with pain was his prophecy in Isaiah 53. But who also had great compassion, healing the sick as we've seen and befriending the loveless and despised in our society and in his. And thirdly, I want to put forward to you that our hope is in a good and righteous God who is the judge of all and who will let no evil or injustice, no wickedness or deceit go unpunished. He does not turn a blind eye to anything, not to the littlest white lie or the pettiest of thefts. And that is why Jesus' atoning sacrifice in which God laid on him the punishment that we all fully deserve is such good news. Just like the paralyzed man in chapter 2, we can draw near to Jesus and he can forgive all our sins and wash us clean of all impurity. And that means that when he comes again, robed in majesty to judge the living and the dead, we can stand blameless and take our place in eternal glory in the presence of God himself. During the First World War, a technique called sound ranging was used to determine from which direction enemy fire was coming. And from those seismic data, that seismic data that was produced, the Imperial War Museum was able a few years ago to recreate an audio experience of the moment when the armistice came into effect at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918. It's available to watch on YouTube, and it's incredibly powerful and moving, to listen to the gunfire and explosions suddenly fall silent. You can even see the original photographic film onto which the data was captured on that day and where the jumpy and angular uh, sound waves suddenly flatline. One soldier on the Western Front said that in the eerie silence he could hear his watch ticking. Another recalled the sound of raindrops falling on leaves. So ended the war to end all wars. Only we know that wasn't to be the case. But when Jesus Christ comes again, all wars will cease. He will usher in a new age, a new heaven and a new earth when God's dwelling place will be among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Do you recognize your need for healing? Will you respond to the good news of the healing that Jesus brings? And if you have already accepted Jesus and profess him to be the king of your life, then perhaps there are particular areas of weakness or habitual sinfulness in your life that you're aware of today. And that you need to bring to Jesus for forgiveness and healing. Perhaps there are people you know, friends, colleagues, relations, who need your help in bringing them to Jesus, just as the paralytic man did. Are there any people like that for whom the hope of bringing them to Jesus seems so unlikely, so painful? Risky that you've not yet found the courage. Be encouraged by the way the boldness of those men in chapter 2 in digging through a roof to get their friend to Jesus is met with the compassion and love of the Lord of life who cares so deeply for men and women today as much as he did 2,000 years ago. Let's take a moment of silence to come before him in your hearts and then I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we mourn our broken world and we acknowledge and confess all the ways in which we have contributed to its brokenness. And we thank you and praise you that you sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross that we might be forgiven for all our sins. We thank you for the life and the healing he brings to us. And we pray that those who have not yet accepted Jesus would welcome him into their hearts today, would confess their sins and gladly receive his forgiveness and cleansing. We pray that for Jesus' sake. Amen.